You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media app that is dedicated directly to the outdoor enthusiasts. Whether you love hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, anything that has to do with the outdoors, you are going to love the Go Wild app. It allows you to document your adventures, document your hunts, show your pictures, log time, and there's a different way of scoring your adventures, not necessarily by the size of the fish or the size of the antlers. It's about the overall experience. So for more information, go download the Go Wild app today or visit timetogowild.com. Hello, everyone. This is Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we're right here on your Land of Legacy podcast, Habitat Heroes Edition, and we are following up. I, I'm enjoying the idea of this one and, and getting into this one um, because it's kind of uh, a, a three-week period here, a three-podcast series, actually a six-podcast series, I guess a five-podcast series, if we're um, going to get technical about Super it. Super technical. We did our first podcast Two weeks ago, that was bedding areas, well, and then we bottlenecks. did bottlenecks. That's bottlenecks. right. Bottlenecks. Start bottlenecks. out with bottlenecks, and then just about like the habitat and what to do, how to enhance them to make hunting easier around bottlenecks. Yeah. And then we talked about actually like our hunting experiences strategy. hunting yeah. bottlenecks, uh, tips and stuff like that. Then the following week, I guess last week would have been the bedding areas one. Bedding areas, absolutely. And we talked about how to improve bedding areas. Um, we did the bottlenecks one, which we really defined a lot of the bottlenecks that are out there, um, both man-made and naturally occurring. And then we talked about the hunting. And then we did the bedding areas. And we talked about ways to improve the bedding areas, whether it's planting native grasses or shrubs or um, creating bedding thickets or temporary forest openings, as the government programs call them. Um, and then we talked about the hunting strategy with those. And really, the the reason we did it that way was because they're so important this time of year. Because um, I think at the at the bare bones of this podcast, um, a lot of people are looking for information to improve their hunting um, and and improve their herd health, improve the herd of their wildlife, specifically white-tailed deer. And so, our motives or what we really preach a lot is is sound habitat management that improves the um, quality of the white-tailed deer and the other native species. And so this one 
is exciting because it kind of ties it all together and we're going to break down it's not so much habitat exactly it's kind of correlation with habitat and the success we had with it you know you saw a couple important things in there one being um you know there's a, a big focus right now on bedding areas but in all reality deer use if there is if you constructed it um created it properly deer are going to use a bedding area throughout 365 days out of the year but right now it's so important because that's the best hunting technique we have to be able to hunt them when deer are focusing bucks are solely searching those areas um to find receptive doe so right now they've get they get a lot of buzz but think about it you know if you need more before we get too far away i want to i want (laughs) to interrupt and say you just said something bucks or deer use bedding areas 365 days a year how many days do they use food plots uh-huh. if we want to talk about prioritizing? Yeah, yeah. Um, they don't use a food plot every single day. And there's a lot of days of the year where they may never use it. They shouldn't use it if your habitat is – or they shouldn't have to use it Correct. if their habitat is, uh, is in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should look at it as almost ice cream to where they'll go there because it's a preferred food source. It's very high quality. But if it's not there, they can still survive and thrive. It's above and beyond what's needed. You know, it, it's like a minimalist feature. I mean, not a not. It's not a minimalist feature. It's like you have everything else, but here's just the addition of a food plot. But yep. bedding areas, regardless, whether whether hunters or whoever are talking about them, they're used consistently daily by deer. So if you're trying to convince yourself of what it is I need to be doing on my property, to me, that one of the number one things is quality cover but security cover. And that yes. comes in the form of these bedding areas we're talking about. And then, again right now, the the whole ice cream on top of a bedding area is they're dynamite to hunt. And yeah. that's what we're reviewing today and talking about how – all the work that's been done that we've talked about on the podcast for a long time, this is podcast 89, where we talked about the Prairie Hollow property or features that we're putting on clients' properties, whatever it may be, all that comes back to reward you. And we saw that come full circle the beginning of November. And oh, I think we were talking about it during the podcast about the bottlenecks and, and bedding areas. Like a lot of times people get frustrated with the rut because deer are just everywhere sporadic there's really no rhyme or reason it it seems like however the challenge is here thought process wise is if you have distinct bedding areas then it's not as sporadic their movements because they're bouncing from one to another to another and that's exactly why we set up properties the way we do and have them on just every single property that that we travel visit and that we want to hunt because we know that they're that successful i'll, uh, I'll say something i'll use a couple stories because i've been this time of year everybody's thinking white-tailed deer so we get a lot of messages both on our land and legacy page and our personal pages and i've had a couple lately where guys have asked me hey on my property um is there something i can do to bring deer in i i had a lot of deer on camera during the summer mm-hmm. but right now i'm having trouble seeing them during the day I have a I have a half acre clover field, and it's or uh, I have a f- one food plot that's in brassicas, but I don't have a whole lot else to where they're coming in. And it's like, to me, if if I owned less than twenty acres, the fir- one of the first things I'd want to do is make it the thickest oh, cover yeah. that's secure that 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 deer feel safe 
to where I know that there's a better chance of seeing daylight activity. And then I would think about a food plot. I wouldn't think of, I wouldn't add a food plot and then think about how to bring them into the food plot. I'd want the cover first. Because in within that cover is forage opportunities. <clears throat> and if you can if you can marry the both of them together, you're going to have a humongous attraction. That's that's when we should property. say depending on what cover we have because there true. is true. the keyword cover that people are planting straight switchgrass which has that's, no forage value yeah and that's one of the biggest problems we have with monoculture switchgrasses we don't have any forage value i would rather mix in some other native species to where there is forage available it spaces it out a little bit it's not so thick and rank switchgrass it's got a little bit of a, a food you increase the food availability and you also increase the cover part of it because it's not so thick that they don't want to be in there or it's tougher for them to be in there and i'm sure if you've listened for a while you've heard us talk about the prairie blend that has been put together in conjunction with pure air natives and we could just leave it out at phase one and stop and that's just the three big grasses that are included in it, but phase two follows up with forbs that are necessary aspect of bedding areas and for the, the basically plant diversity within these areas to have forage opportunities. So, And podcast listeners get a 10% discount. That's true. So I yeah. uh, encourage you to go to pureairnatives.com if you are thinking about it. And it is that time of year when we should be thinking about it. It is coming. I had a discussion the other day with a, with a gentleman um, – out of Maryland, and we're talking about planting season for natives, and it's it's not the the typical planting season, as you will, with food plots. It's basically when you're starting to get frost, hard frost, then on until spring greenup is planting season for most natives, grasses and forb mixes. And so we're hitting that mm-hmm. window. So you'll hear us talking a lot more about that, and we'll probably have podcast with pure natives that's the plan discussing you know steps needed to take to be able to plant this restore these um native plants which are going to be tough to beat when you're looking at some of the things the once and done management techniques you can do it's going to be it would be very tough to beat a high diverse mix that you plant of native perennials if you value time and money you you have extreme value in planting natives, biting the bullet, if you will, getting them started and letting that just... If you're taking care of them, proper management, you have 20-plus years of forage and cover if you do it at one at basically one upfront cost. Where food plots is spring, you're planting seed, soil amendments, time, fall, you're doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. Anyhow, and there's a little yeah. sidetrack. <laughs> back to back to success. So I don't even remember what what was the date on this. November second and third. Yeah. So you you followed us along and you've heard us talk about bottlenecks and you heard us talk about bedding areas and then at some point during one of those podcasts we talked about the correlation between the two and how deadly that can be if you have bottlenecks that are leading into bedding areas. To where basically if there's a food source, let's say, to the east and there's a bedding area to the west and there's a bottleneck in between, those bottlenecks could be extremely awesome to hunt during that late October, early November. I think the the success or activity that someone can experience around a, a pinch point, a funnel, 
bottleneck, whatever it is, is truly dependent upon what's on either side of that funnel and that bottleneck. And so that's why it's like, okay, at this time of the year, we need to be focusing on ha- or hunting bottlenecks with bedding areas close by. That's right. It's a it's a street crossing. If there's nothing to entice you across the street, you have no reason to go across it. Same That's thing exactly with the deer. Right. If if yep. there's nothing to pull them through the bottleneck, they don't. They, They're there's not going to no reason to go often. through it. Yeah. Um, and I've enjoyed just because of over the years, like I enjoy finding those bottlenecks and somehow making a mock scrape or a scrape related to it. And and this year has been or in relation to it. Um, this year has been super cool for us to sit back and watch the emails come in because we are testing the Cuddy Link cell camera mm-hmm. and we have 12 cameras linked together that are sending us emails a um, couple times a day. And so we have a couple of those cameras in key. Actually, one of them is in the saddle that I shot my buck. Yep. Oop, cat's out of the bag. Oop. And... Another one is pretty close to where you shot your buck. Oh, another yep. cat's out of the bag. That's this week's podcast. Both Matt and I harvested nice bucks November 2nd and 3rd, and it kind of comes down to understanding the, the components of the landscape, the bedding areas, and the bottlenecks. And then, of course, we had the cameras, which was so cool because we knew they were in the area. This time of year, it's so like, well, I gave this story two podcasts ago when the the buck I shot, who we had named, um, I we had just gave him a stupid name, Mister October, because that's when I felt like he had showed up. But it actually ended up being Hippie from last year, and uh, a buck that Matt and I had an encounter with late um, October <clears throat> in late October in the Big year. Bottom field. Yep. And this year he showed back up in October and was everywhere. He yeah. was moving like crazy, and. I, I looked at the Hunt Terra map the other day, and the north saddle and south saddle, 600 yards apart, and he was at one saddle at, oh, it was like 515 or something. He was at the south saddle 30 minutes later. He was back at the north saddle. He was back at the south saddle, and he ended up being down in the bottom. And it was like he did all that moving 600 yards um, back and forth a couple of times in a matter of an hour and 20 minutes or two hours. Uh, and it, it, it was it was the science basically that needed to say he's using the the bottlenecks the pinch points and he's on his feet he's the most active deer we have right now yeah he's this this deer showed every signs of being harvestable and it made sense to go in yeah and, and give it a give it a whirl you think about so we not only have the Cuddy Link cameras we run a lot of trail cameras that's why we get asked the question a lot by our clients what's the best trail camera. And we don't not there's not one that I would just tip my cap and say this is the go to one. They this is all. the one that's superior yeah. to all the others. And we run so we've got several cutty links in saddles. We've got several other uh we've got some bushnells, we've got a Moultrie, we've got some Exodus, we've got a bunch of different brands and um they're all we've got some on food plots, some on mock scrapes and a bunch of them in saddles. And bar none, our bottleneck cameras are the ones that have the most activity Consistent. every single day. Yep. Um, we've got, on the Prairie Hollow property alone, we've got three saddle cameras. And they all are, all three of those, One, two of those are on scrapes. The other one's 
on what was a scrape until the tree died, and now it's blown down, and we didn't ever put a mock scrape, but it's still got a ton of activity. Well, it it's, is it's the narrow, best saddle anyway. It, it's a narrow pass, basically, and deer use it. And you don't need anything else because if they're going to walk through it, they're going to be on camera. Yeah, they're and so we've got we've got those three saddles, and then we've got the one at the entrance to Sawmill, which is another really, really – did you see the two does come uh-huh. running up the road? I don't know what that was about. That was this know. afternoon's email. Yeah. And so those four areas are just incredible bottlenecks that we have got to watch all fall. And um, when Hippie showed back up, boom, first picture, we got of him. He was at a bottleneck. And then we sat there and watched him move through all these bottlenecks for weeks. And then I got on top, and and, uh, we finally got a wind that allowed us to kind of slip in and hunt that saddle on the very back. And uh, I'll tell that story in a little bit, but – um, before we go into that story, think about the buck that we thought was Big Show. Mm-hmm. He showed back up. Where did he show up? In a saddle. Saddles. Where did we get pictures of him again? Saddle. Um, yep. Yesterday that, that, morning. There's, I guess someone's going to say, well, that's because that's where your cameras are. Yes, but two, there's cameras in other places as well. But what we know from the frequency of of his activity He's using bottlenecks. Like it's not well, like it's just like a random. Oh, got him! They're they're routinely using these bottlenecks because of the habitat that's that's been placed strategically around them. At, it, spe- at this time of year, that's what they're doing. And also, <clears throat> one story would be we have a cutty link at the. It's on a main trail. It's in a bottleneck at the sawmill holler entrance. It's a real kind of a lot of a lot of unique features that cause this bottleneck to happen. It's not it's not a drop in a ridge or a saddle. It's it's basically where two ridges in it's a valley that comes out into a bigger valley. And there's there's a creek there's crossing. two big ditches yeah. and then another creek crossing that runs perpendicular with that to where it's really just a narrow little bridge that they can yeah. use and and that same trail And a bluff. And a bluff. Washout. People are so confused right now. This guy, they're like, it's got everything. And a canyon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so um, the same trail dumps out in front of another Cuddyback camera, a Cuddy Link camera, in a bigger food plot that's got standing Stratton beans, um, the Legacy Blend broadcasted into it. Looks, and look, I mean, looks like a dynamite absolute killer food source right and, now. And that food plot is dead. There's nothing. There's nothing. There. there was a dink uh, buck there today. Yeah. It's like... Is if you want to look at, okay, where should I hunt right now? One hundred percent, I'm hunting bottlenecks still, and it, because and we don't, ha- because we have such a huge acre crop, and the bottlenecks are hot because they don't have to go to food plots to get food. They have acres everywhere. Correct, correct, and it's like if you were from an outside source looking in, not knowing all the you know intricate details of the property. The first thing, first place you'd go to would be the food plots. Absolutely, and, and, and you would be sitting there right now, twiddling thumbs, twiddling thumbs, and saying, "This place sucks. <laughs> These yeah. guys don't know what they're doing." Meanwhile, our cameras and cell phones, emails are getting lit up with bucks cruising and are on their feet crossing these bottlenecks, and you'd have no idea. No, but that's why understanding the biology of what deer are doing and understanding how they're going to use terrain, just having general woodsmanship skills and, and understanding what deer are doing, how they're traveling the property, that's going to give you the leg up. It's not it's not a food plot right now. We- that's why if you are a food plot guy and, and you're thinking, how can I, 
you know, I've got a kid I want to take. How can right. I ensure they're going to see some? That's why those bottleneck food plots are awesome. Yeah. Find a key feature to where you can slip a, a food plot, a half acre end, where a deer can grab a quick bite as they're going from one fence line to the other. Or, or like the bottleneck we just talked about that had the two does that ran through this morning. Like, we know deer crossing and using it. They may not, their end, their end result is not that food plot, but it's still a, a bottleneck in between bedding and a food plot. But since it's a bottleneck, they're coming out of the bedding and going elsewhere. Regardless, if you have food sources, find the areas that deer are traveling to and from because that is going to give you more consistent routine action. It may not be the same deer. It probably won't be the same deer. No, You'll probably see a huge, you know, variation in age structure, different bucks, this and that, but it's definitely going to give you your highest percentage of seeing just quality deer movement. That's the bottleneck for you. That's what we've been keen into. And that's where we found our success. And in talking with other people um, around our area, that's where they're finding success as well. Yeah, for sure. Talked to Seth Harker um, today. And he's like, dude, if you're, if, if you're one of those guys that's sitting on a food plot right now, you're not seeing near what mm-hmm. what you could be seeing. He he's been hunting some food plots, but it's travel corridor, it's bottleneck food plots. Right. It's catching deer cruising through, and he's still hunting saddles and pinch points just like we are, and mm-hmm. seeing a lot of really nice deer. Um, fortunately, he didn't have a cameraman with him right now to really yeah. corral and and get one killed. But um, that's that's the that's where we're seeing success and. Um, and we're going to continue seeing success until we get the cold weather that pushes them into food plots. And and when we do, the property is set up to achieve that goal just as just as equally uh, success rate basically as these as we're hunting bottlenecks right now. I think honestly, late season we have just as good of a chance at killing another good deer or two out of the food plots because of just the condition, the way they're set up, and then the bedding areas in conjunction with those food plots, which is a whole other podcast we'll get into, <laughs> hopefully when there's success down the road. Yeah, we, season, so. one thing, we've been cruising right along. Matt and I have been just hammering out topics and picking topics because that's what's been on our mind. But I would, I, I, I always want to try to encourage listeners to come up with ideas that they want to hear us cover what is it sure. what is it that we haven't done or what is it we haven't uh as matt says dive deep dive in on um maybe we've covered one briefly but what would you like to hear us talk about more um and this is like i would like to think that some of our podcast topics are a little bit different than ones that you may have heard on other places just because of the fact that we There's are landowners emphasis. And we have a strong emphasis on habitat, but we also we've we're running a lot of trail cameras. We've ran a lot of trail cameras. We have a lot of experience on other research projects where um, we do things a lot differently than some of the other people out there. I, I would like to think so. Um, when it comes to topics, let us know what you want to hear us cover because. Um, Frankly, we've got a lot of we can go on and on. So, and I think we're teasing them. We need to get into these hunts. All right. Talk so November second, um, we, brother and I, I forget you had was, real estate duties. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and then I had a showing m- midday. I couldn't even come on the recovery. That's right. I got just a ir- urgent call. Someone was sitting at the property. I was like, 
I gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, um, November second, we have been having. This is one thing too. Make sure you have stands set up for all winds. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of different stands and blinds, and um, a lot of different places that require different winds. And this year, it's it, we've had this conversation. It seems like every year we have the conversation. This year, we're getting more real about it. Everybody always says, ah, prevailing wind southwest. It doesn't matter where you go in the country. It almost, oh, west, it's, something it's west. Something west. When are we going to accept that a southeast wind it is borderline prevailing wind? Yeah. Because here, and I'm going to go back and research and see what the wind has been um, a majority from September 15th to the January 15th to see what percentage of days were southeast wind, what percentage of days were west, what percentage of days were north. Because right now, my gut tells me southeast is the dominating wind. It's not just a inconvenience or ironic factor that every time we want to hunt, it feels like there's a southeast. It's just a matter of there's that many more southeast. And it hasn't been just this fall. It's been since I can remember moving out a lot of southeast winds. Yeah. And it's like, this needs to change. We've got to do something to make hunting southeast winds more feasible. And, and one un- of those ones was the stand that you killed. It yep. was, hey, we've got other, other saddles that have got to be hunted on north winds. We've got to set one up for a south wind because we're going to get it and we're going to want to hunt. And this this is where we need to hunt. The trail cameras are showing that. We've got to set up for south wind. And, and that kind of goes against a little bit of what we preach. Um, and it, that's where it comes into not so much uh, because when we hunt saddles, we're not hunting saddles all, all day, every day. Like it's it's something we hunt during a short period of time, during the rut, um, the, the saddle bottlenecks because they are so hot. In a couple of weeks when it gets really cold, they're not going to be the ones we're talking about aren't going to be Two of them will be, but the one that I killed is not gonna. Be, it's gonna be a far cry from yeah. from being active just because it's so far away from a uh, major food source. But we typically talk about slipping in and never really intruding and never really going through. This one, unfortunately, because when you say that the wind's out of the southeast, you automatically think, well, the best place to enter would be a northwest. Unfortunately, it's a southeast it. entrance or a eastern entrance, so we have to come all the way through the property to get to this saddle. That goes with saying, though, for, for now, for now, for now, for now, um, and maybe a little bit of gravel on those roads because it was a long, slippery <laughs> walk yeah. all the way in. So we had, we've had a lot of rain here this year, um, this fall anyway. Um, and it's not been a lot of like heavy downpours. We've had some of those, but we've had a lot of dreary and misty, drizzly days to where this, we just soak, the ground gets soaked. So it's really slick. Um, and we've got the logging operation going on to where they got postponed, but the road where they've been dragging logs out is mostly mud. And so we couldn't drive the vehicle. We had to walk from way back all the way up through walk. the property. Your brother and I did it yesterday. It's it, like, hey, dad gum it. It's a long walk. It's a long walk. And we We've walked spoiled. all the way up, walked through the saddle, and hunted on the north side of the saddle, um, looking back south where we had just walked from. Now, the difference between hunting a saddle and a food plot, we wouldn't want to do that in a food plot because – Frankly, the deer come and congregate in front of you where you've just walked through. In a saddle, 
it's almost like running through traffic or looking at traffic. Yeah. Like you time it and you can get out of there as they keep going back through crossing it. Um, and so we walked through. We didn't feel like there were going to be deer there walking in. And it was actually the first time that I can ever remember walking that far onto the property. As it, Even as a teenager and, and in my 20s, we always jumped deer. Mm. We didn't this time. We got in the stand, and then deer started yeah. moving. Part of that was probably a little bit of weather related. Yep. But, that, oh. and that's the other thing of, of getting to... <clears throat> or having the having the ability to really watch cameras for days preceding a hunt is kind of understanding when deer are most active on their feet because yeah you truly did walk through a lot a big portion of the property out of necessity but in all reality it, it wasn't damaging that much because the deer weren't really that active on their feet in these areas until mid-morning yep and, and we knew that it's like well slip in there get in there do it See what happens. So with a south wind switching to slightly south-southwest, we went to the four-corner saddle. And brother went with me, and he was filming. Hint, hint. <laughs> a, a little bit of a foreshadow. Um, I think You meant to say, quote, filming, end quote. Yes. He was, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, air quote. Yeah. He was filming, and uh, we got into the tree. Uh, now here's one key feature that we brought with us because this is the this is a forecast. Um, <laughs> it was rain, <laughs> rain. It was supposed to be chilly. Yeah. It was it was in the upper 30s, low 40s, and wind was south southwest, and um, it was not raining when we got there. It had rained a little bit during the night, but there was peak rain at eight o'clock to nine o'clock. It was like it was going to rain, but it looked like it was just going to rain a little bit and then move on. We got in the stand, sun comes up, starts to kind of drizzle, gets real foggy. Uh, that was like 7.30 probably, starts starts raining. We have an umbrella with us. And I have this is where I'm a little bit um, torn and have been because I've never been one to really want to hunt in the rain because of the fact of, if you do shoot one, the blood washes away. Yep. But this one was kind of a little bit different because it was such a small window of rain. It's like, well, I probably don't want to shoot one at the beginning of the rain, but I will towards the end if one comes by. Because and it's not like you're getting out and coming back for yeah, a 45 minute it was, rain. If you it was a short little burst of rain. Right, right. And so we popped the umbrella up. We're sitting huddled, huddled kind of in an awkward position where it was like his feet were in my face because we only want to put one umbrella up. So it was the camera. But your brothers, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> camera and two guys kind of huddled huddled under an umbrella. And I will throw out a shameless just like uh, I've used umbrella different umbrellas before, but I was this time using the Hawk umbrella. I don't even know what they call it. But it's a little bit longer mm-hmm. and a little bit wider. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, that's a little bit big and bulky. I'm glad we I purchased it a couple years ago, and it is a bigger umbrella. If I had the little normal one, yeah. I would have got I would have got wet. Yeah, yeah. And so um, using that umbrella, sitting under it, and I'm sitting there just kind of waiting it out. Yeah. And Letting with, time pass. With rain and in the hardwoods, of course, the leaves now are – there's no sound. You're just sitting there trying to catch so damp. catch nothing. deer moving. We yeah. had a little buck come in, work the scrape. He ends up coming down. 
gets uh, five yards from the stand, kind of sees us, senses us, <coughs> turns around and, and kind of trots a little bit and then walks up the hill. It was like, well, if a big deer does that, we're going to shoot him before he yeah. does that. But I don't like the idea that he was he saw us. He I mean, we're in a pretty inspecting. small tree, umbrella, two guys, camera gear. Yeah. yeah, we stick out like a sore thumb. Well, then two coyotes come by, and they're coming, came straight from behind us. Didn't know they were there until bam, they're on us. Yeah. And uh, of course, didn't didn't even shoot, tr- attempt to shoot one of them. Um, thought it was three at first. Um, then I was like, well, if it's a pack of three, I will shoot one of them. Yeah. And they ended up moving off, and it was still kind of like, well, we saw two coyotes and a little buck. That's about your classic sawmill hauler Just hunt. Deep timber hunt. And. Yeah. Uh, we keep sitting there, and 9 o'clock gets here, and it's still raining. And I'm like, I think Ugh. you guys called – or your brother called me or text – did he text me? He, text. Like, we just got done texting, and all of a sudden I got another text back. Yeah. Like, n- less than a minute after I had originally texted him, and then I was like, oh, he shot. Wait, what? Chad, yeah. why, didn't you, why didn't you tell me this beginning? But like, Well, I'll tell you that story. Ooh. I didn't even share that story with you um, because – we're in the tree. We're sitting there, and at this point, it's it's a mind game, mental game of should we go ahead and get down? It's raining. Like yeah. it looks like it's gonna rain a little longer. It's already nine o'clock, and I'm like, well, uh, let's just set till ten. And Chad goes, well, it looks like the rain's gonna drag out a little bit longer. Let's set till eleven. Now I'm going, okay, two more hours of this. Ugh, this is this is not fun. And I'm already – I can feel it kind of starting to break in through my sleeves, mm-hmm. and it's just like, uh, this is not – And once that... you get – once you're already cold, because that was a cold morning. Oh, uh, yeah. But once you get, like, wet and damp wet, you can't hardly warm yourself back up or get warm again. No. And, like, and so oh. I'm just sitting there going, this is just one of those days where it's going to take a good – it's going to take me a while to warm back up. And so we're sitting there, 930 hits – still kind of raining uh, and it's kind of going a little bit heavier a little bit lighter and it's like well it's gonna let up soon and then i hear and it's kind of like i know i didn't hear a deer because everything's soaked so, so i turn to my left 20 yards here's hippie standing there he just strolled into my first shooting lane from behind us borderline downwind and he immediately stops like Whoa, something's something's wrong here. Yeah. And um so I I remember I reached to my right and I hit my brother on the leg and I like grabbed him with the intensity that he immediately knew big deer close. That that means turn the camera on, hit record please. Yes, that's <laughs> that immediately like grab. yes. Yeah. And uh so I I stand up just real quick, stand up Deer still standing there, and you can tell he's just trying to. He's getting like awareness look. about him, right? He's looking all around him and mm. everything he can see, and he's trying to just know if there's anything close. Yeah. He just has that sixth sense, like there's something's a, off. There's a present. There's a ghost whether, in my room. Whether he saw our outline in the tree, uh-huh. because looking down where I shot him, and looking back towards the tree, not a bit of backdrop. It's just yeah. like two globs yeah. could be sticking out. Right. Maybe that's what he saw. Maybe he smelled us. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We'll never know. But he immediately throws his guard up, and it's like, oh man! And yeah. so you I knew stood he wasn't going to just easily walk through the rest of the no. The saddle. Immediately, I knew it was going to be a scramble. It was now or never. And <laughs> so I grab, I grab my bow, and I glance back, and Chad is moving the camera around, pointed towards the deer, and I'm like, okay, 
cameras surely first instinct always turn camera on hit record yep. every cameraman or potential wanting in wanting to be a cameraman that's rule number one turn camera on hit record if you've been hit with a sense of urgency just just do it yes and so I glance up Chad's moving the camera around that deer then throws his head up takes two big bounds and in the middle of the bound I go me trying to replicate a doe bleat, fawn bleat, any kind of natural, a like, deer sound. a deer sound. <laughs> Just get it out. Just that stop. That he might hear, and, because I was afraid at that point, as still as it was, if I went the, the classic, yeah. he wouldn't stop. Yeah. And so I went, me, and he immediately slammed on the brakes, stopped, <laughs> and was kind of, like, looking back, like, did I just hear that? Who like, the, where is she? T- and to me, I, I, I looked at his body language, which said he was alert. He s- knew something was wrong, but he was yep. still, it's still November 2nd. Mm-hmm. Love knows no boundaries. He, he's, he's still got something on his mind. Yeah. And so when I did that, meet, he immediately stopped. I glanced back up at Chad. Cameras pointed that way. No range. I just looked at it and said, looks like 32 yards. That's another Another tidbit I would like to tell people is I don't ever want to be, and you shouldn't either, to where you're so reliant on that rangefinder of I'm not going to shoot until I have that range. I have to range it. That You're just falling to technology. You're handcuffed to technology. It goes when, back to me as like a kind of a killer instinct. Yeah. Uh, and, and not to say that you shouldn't take unethical shots it's not a it's not a factor of being unethical it's you did your homework early on when you got to the stand and had ranged other stuff previously and you'd ranged all summer you'd practice to where you knew that what 32 yards looks like from stand. and so basically when i get in a stand what i like to do is i like to put a 20 yard circle around me and so i range everything that's 20 yards or close to 21 19 and i'm like okay that's that's my 20 yard circle then I do that at 30 yards, and that's my 30-yard circle. Then I do that at 40 yards. Yep. On this hunt, there was no 40-yard circle. <laughs> right. It was kind of a semi-30-yard <laughs> circle. And that deer was standing a little past my 30-yard circle, and so I said 32 yards. Thump. I settled the pin. He was quartering away hard, and I settled the pin, thump, and hit him exactly where I wanted Mm-hmm. Kind of almost surprised me a little bit on how well of a like yeah. how the arrow went exactly where I wanted, and I, I mean that was one of those like we got our our triaxes. I don't even know early September, yeah, something like that. And yeah. so we're talking about a twenty-eight axle to axle bow, to where it feels a little bit when you first look at it, you're like this thing's tiny. It almost feels like a like little how youth much, bow. How much power is behind this thing? Yeah, but... like, I will. I will. 100% advocate that I love that bow so much mm. because the little bitty bow, pick it up, and I just drew it back and immediately, like, and I noticed this as soon as I shot it, that it just settles well. And so as soon as I drew back, pin settled 32 yards, thump, drilled him, and I turned back, and, of course, Chad's jacked with the camera trying to get it put back around. It was in a awkward position mm-hmm. anyway because he was filming right over top of my head hung the bow up and I could not believe what had just happened. And, and, and all of that happened in a, in a mere eight seconds or less yeah. between heard him, looked, saw him, stood up, grabbed bow, hit Chad, or I guess heard him, saw him, hit Chad, stood up, grabbed bow, glanced back at Chad, drew back, shot, eight seconds. Yeah. And he ran off and then it just complete meltdown. Um, 
and it was just it, so to give you an idea of what the it wasn't just a saddle on a ridge. It wasn't just yeah. we're hunting a saddle. You and Chad had done a bedding thicket mm-hmm. just to the southwest of this stand yep. on the other side of the saddle. In the direction that he was he was not coming from, but headed towards. Headed towards. He was using the saddle to cross to get to it. And that and that's why there was a scrape there that we found and put a cutter link camera on that obviously the bucks every time that they're going to scent check. They're coming to that scrape the check as they're crossing that saddle to get and, to that bedding area. And we have three Ooh, we had three really good bucks on the Prairie Hollow property this yeah. year. All three of them have been active on that scrape. Yep. And two of them have come back even since I killed Hippie out of that mm-hmm. same saddle and drove the four wheeler down in there and drug him out of there. That don't matter. It don't matter. And and our best up and comer, mm-hmm. um, he was there as well. So it's kind of this this scrape, this this landmark of is it the bottleneck? Yes. Why is that bottleneck better than some of the others? Well, this one has a bedding thicket a lot closer to it yep. than some of the others. So there's a chance that's probably has a lot to do with it. And the nearest food plot to that bedding area was consistently having six to seven does in it on pretty much a daily routine, morning and evening, and it wasn't hunted. Like, we never went in there just to go kill the does. They're very unpressured. We let that area just kind of work as a ticking time bomb, knowing that that saddle was going to be great this time of the year, knowing the bedding area thicket was going to be very active, well-used because of the doe groups that were in that food plot. And that's what happened. That's exactly what to happened. To me, another thing about that is, too, is the difference between reliant on the cameras and just playing your gut. Yeah. We hadn't had a picture of those deer on that scrape in probably a week because – at that point, they're really focused on cruising it's, and it's chasing. At, it's less scrape activity, but they're still they could still be utilizing that entire saddle. They, but if their nose is on a trail, work. they're not going to go stop to check that scrape. They're going to continue on that trail. That's right. That's right. And and that buck totally came from the northeast, worked his way down, and appeared to be if I hadn't shot him that he was going to cross the saddle. Right there around the scrape, possibly just a little yeah. way south, and move up towards the bedding thicket and another food plot. And it was kind of one of those, like, who knows? We can play the what-if game. What if the bedding thicket wasn't there? What if the food plot wasn't around? What if? But we do know that that has been the most popular scrape, the most popular bottleneck mm-hmm. through the whole season, and it's the one that has the bedding area closest re- clo- closest in relation to it. Yep. So yep. shot him. Came back four hours later. He was dead 80 yards from where I shot him. He died running. Yeah. Um, completely just, <coughs> excuse me, um, shot him, and he was dead two minutes after I shot him. Yeah. And uh, that's how you want it to happen. So uh, he ended up scoring 143 in an eighth and uh, is now my biggest buck with a boat, biggest mm-hmm. buck to date. Um, another Ozark Mountain 10-pointer. So her another Ozark Mountain buck, and this time it's 10-pointer. Yeah. So – could be three and a half, actually. Which Could be four and a half. Don't know. It, it's, um, it's weird. Like, you, you watch deer, and you really get to know them on camera, and their, what their body language is saying and how it grows and changes and develops over time. And body-wise, pretty pretty positive that the deer was four and a half. Yeah. But based on last year's pl- observation yeah. as well. 
and then this year's observation is like, ah, yeah, that, that deer, he's he's definitely active. He's definitely one of the top hit listers. Um, but then he got and caped him out and really start looking at the jaws like, it does not scream four and a half. Is no. there a chance? Yeah. But all the signs and a scientific mirror point towards a three and a half. That that's just to say there nothing takes away from that. Anybody would have shot that deer. Yeah. And we don't even know if he is three and a half or four and a half. But the story is that deer worked through a saddle, through towards a veterinary thicket. And and like I said, prior to that. And how far do you think that veterinary thicket was from that saddle? Oh, across the as a crow flies, like hundred yards from the edge of it. Yeah, it's not far at all. No, not and at it's all. gonna that saddle. I just look at it. That whole you go from the saddle, it's twenty yards and a steep drop off. That whole thing is gonna be blown over next year. Yes. To where and where as we create a better road system, we're gonna make it wide. That plenty wide there to where well, it's gonna be a. Heck of a rifle spot, too. Uh, and a view spot from that post oak. When oh, you man. blow out that side, you're going to be able to see forever due yep. west. It's going to be yep. incredible. Yeah. But regardless of all that, the story and success of this is understanding the relationship between deer, terrain, features, and, and, and habitat. Yep. And that was the success. That was the story. That's why that deer was there. That's why he got killed there. When he got killed there, it was a culmination of basically everything. The previous podcast, parts one and two of bedding areas and, and um, bottlenecks, was leading up to. So it was like, ha! Incredible. Incredible yeah. that it came together like that. Unfortunately, your brother got put in a very, very tough situation. He gets to, f- fed to the wolves every time he tries to film. He, he's And he... he, he well, he's not a self-proclaimed filmer. He just sometimes has to fill the shoes. Yeah. And like you said, every single time, it's not one of those nice, like, oh, there's a deer coming from 200 yards away. Let it get ready. Get good and it focused. It comes in the food plot. He's eating turnips. Yeah. And, it does and, not have to like that for him. No. It's always <laughs> like, the turn work- the camera on, record. I'm going to shoot Matt. Yeah. Are you on him? Are you on him? Are you on him? <laughs> yeah. It's a very tough situation. So, unfortunately, he hasn't even been able to – be in a situation to prove himself that it's it's like he can do it because it's like Im- impossible situations. And if he's like, I had been filming, <laughs> I would have had who's to say, yeah. who's to say really what else I would have added. But it, it, we do have footage. I haven't even br- I, I haven't, haven't even, even came haven't to myself. Like I haven't even got to the point of watching it because I'm so like. I'm not. I don't you have don't, high hopes. You don't have high hopes, but in all reality, it, it would have been awesome to capture. But the the true story is what we're talking about right now. Yeah, is like again habitat features, manipulating it, changing it, and I will. I will. I promise. This is no exaggeration. When Chad and I cut that bendary in, we spent a half hour, a tank of gas for me and a tank of gas for him. Yep. And there's a 143-inch deer dead because of it. And have we been back since we cut it? No, it. doesn't exactly. matter. And and it was late into the summer, so if yeah. there's not there's I want I want to make that clear. There's not like great regeneration or anything that we would expect to go back and visibly see. What there is is trees on the ground. There's structure on the ground. So you don't even need to ha- like have to do it well before the growing season. 
you can do it late if you're, the rest of the habitat's kind of lower quality. They're going to use it. There, yeah. was, there was a large doe group using it routinely. Yeah. That was it, one of the best food plots <clears throat> through October that had deer in it. Yeah. Yesterday, uh, we had um, whatever his – what did you call him the other day? The new uh, – the tall-browed buck. I, you had some name to him. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a pretty good name. We'll call him that. He's the big eight-pointer that we thought no, was a big show remember. all summer. But uh, I, you might have called him tall tine or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but anyway – um, he's a big eight pointer and he was cruising through chasing does through that yesterday yep. morning. Yep. And so there's Daylight a, and there's a so good. very good chance that we can tag another one out of there. Who knows? Very We've got Stratton fellers coming in the next two days and they've got rifles, big boom, boom sticks. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> and they're boys from Arkansas. So I don't <laughs> think it's going to take much. <laughs> first scrubby that comes by. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I mean, bottleneck success. Yeah. But we're just getting started. It doesn't, it doesn't end there, which is the craziest part because I we we said I think I think it was after after you killed later that evening we, we all got together and kind of reminisced and and skinned the deer out, caped them out, and just talked about. It. I was like, man, wouldn't that be awesome if like this deer season was kind of like turkey season for us? We had a, just a banner year turkey hunting. I think uh, we went out like. 12, 14 mornings with friends and family and whatnot, and 12 birds died. So it was like we were just on fire. Birds just wanted to cooperate, and we had great success back to back to back to back. And it's like, wow, wouldn't that be awesome if deer season was, was like that? So that was the evening of the second. The next morning, guess what wind we had? Southeast. Southeast, baby. And we're there like, ah, there's two places on on – on basically that hasn't been hunted. We wanted to leave that area alone because of the disturbance the day before. Um, there's two other stands that were set up, and, and one was pretty much everything that we wanted to be hunting. It was improved habitat in a bottleneck. And this happens to be the same stand that Adam killed a deer out of two years ago. Um, a great, great nine-pointer um the sticker, the sticker eight hunt, and I think we we broke down that hunt or talked about it on the podcast a couple of times, and specifically that area. Anyhow, the next morning we get up and it's like kind of a no brainer. This is the best opportunity. This is the best place to go to based on sign of another big scrape on a food plot just on the top of the ridge, and we're kind of on the side slope end of the ridge, kind of an elevator working up to that main ridge with areas that. I think your brother was in there this past summer. He he expanded what we yeah. the work we had done two years ago in there, and so it had two different basically types of regeneration in there: two year old regeneration and then one growing season. And so the area <clears throat> looks pretty phenomenal for for cover and habitat and forage. And as a result of that, we see activity in that food plot from that stand we've hunted. That was the second time we hunted it. Yeah, I so think the so. second time we hunted that stand, and we you know, saw deer, and, f- and we've seen deer every time we've hunted it since the first time, time we cut it. Oh so yeah, it's like not not ever we go stuck. there, and we're gonna see deer. Yeah, usually. Yep. And it's and unfortunately, that's one of those stands where as we've cut, we've kind of expanded on it, mm-hmm. and we've had this conversation multiple times. We need to move the stand. Yeah, we need to move the stand. We talked about it before this deer got killed. Yeah, that morning we talked about. Because as we were walking in, we actually bumped deer 
basically to the north of the stand as we're getting in. There's two deer and had no idea what they were. They just kind of heard them scoot away. And I was like, come on, you really need to move that stand. It's just, yeah. it's great, but it, we're feeling like because of the additional work, it's a little too intrusive. And it, then It's not so much um, like a half-acre bedding thicket. Like, we've kind of cut the area to where now it, it could be a whole <laughs> acre. Yeah. Kind of long, long skinny, like a yeah. pickle shape, if you will. Um, and we're kind of halfway down it. like <laughs> Kind of right in the middle of the day. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> like, it, it, and the reason for that is because there's a draw. There's an elevator yeah. ridge. So that they the, use to access from that bedding area and beyond on the on a neighboring property that is pretty much a sanctuary. They come off that up the elevator ridge or, or are already bedding on it to work up to that food plot or the white oaks because there's tons and tons of white oaks in that area this year. Yes, and so basically it's it's just one of those spots that is great because of the terrain, but when we improved the bedding, made the bedding thicket, what used to be there was tall cedars, junky timber, and a lot of like mixed. I remember looking at it and there was a lot of uh, broom sedge oh, and yeah. there was a lot of uh, like kind of just her other herbaceous plants there that told us it was getting some sunlight, but the cedars are quickly mm-hmm. choking it out. So we went in, all three of us, and we cut two tanks each, I think. We and, spent some time in there. And we hammered the cedars and did a bunch of TSI in this whole area to where cut it turned into woods, where it was just stuff. Uh, uh, spice oh, bush was spice bush came back came back heavy yep. to a point where we know that we're going to have to attack it so it doesn't get too thick. But yep. um, we basically changed that landscape. And the first fall, I went in there and shot sticker eight. You film and mm-hmm. where. Uh, it was a great indicator. They like this area. Yeah. He he stood up. What we, what we think is probably 65 yards from that stand. He stood up out of a out of a what looks like appears to be a routine. Oh, don't, say bed. don't say it. Don't say it. I'm not. I'm not saying buck bed. I'm saying <laughs> bed. It uh, it had those those signs. It was like this is the first time. And what going back to filming that hunt, it's like that's the that's the first time I saw that deer was right there in that like five yards within five yards of that that yeah. area and it was just a couple he either came straight up the gut straight up the mm-hmm. bottom of that valley jumped the fence and then came up or he stood up from his bed jumped out because it's yeah. a couple of trees that we've cut it with a dead cedar over the top yeah. and he probably jumped out and that's when you heard him yeah so yeah it's just it, it's a phenomenal area and again this this is it's kind of funny you know, as we're talking about it more more thoughts are coming um, but there was a bedding area thicket that was, that proved success for you. That was cut end of summer this year. And then now we have this hunt a day later where we're in an area that was cut two years ago. So it's got good growth. And then, um, adjacent to that or extended from that is an area that's cut, had one growing season. And so basically, I guess the moral of that is cut some stuff, get it on the ground and you're going to be. You're going to utilize it. It's that. It's that simple. If you're not comfortable with chainsaw, get comfortable. Take classes, whatever. If you're in timber country, because it's that easy to be able to create this kind of stuff that deer are going to naturally use, want to use, and it, it proves success. And not only is it beneficial for cover standpoint and hunting standpoint. But the regen, you get yeah. hinge cut some trees. We're not saying bedding thickets are hinge cut areas. No, 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 They're no, no, not. No. Um, You'll see from the footage of what it is. There's yeah, some yeah. hinge cut. There's some, some flush hinge cut, cut. Some flush cut. I'll tell you a lot what, flush cut. What in this we area. get is 
now, as, as we get a little later in winter, there's all kinds of buds and browse oh in there gosh, that tons. they can browse on year-round, which yep. is how they eat. Yep. They eat browse year-round. So there is a year-round food source and cover here. What Best of both worlds, plus we get to hunt it and have success. Yeah. two Not two years in a row, but... Um, two out of three years. Close. Yeah. Close. Last year we didn't hunt it probably because there wasn't. I don't know if I remember right. There wasn't a. There was a couple of good deer couple in the area, deer. and when we hunted it, we saw a deer. We just didn't yeah. see the one we're after. Yeah. So we get up and in the stand, and not long into the stand, I mean it wasn't even shooting line, I don't think, but enough to be able to see a body moving up out of what was cut across the hillside, working up to a food plot. Have no idea what deer it was or what caliber, but what appeared to be. A, bo- a good a good sized body. A good body. sized body. Made his way up to the top Acting of the Acting like a buck. Yeah. Cruising, moving quick. Um, once he got far enough away and there was a little bit more light, threw a couple grunts out with no response. Okay, yeah. whatever. Let's sit back. The next couple, I don't, I don't even know when those other does worked through, but it's probably about 8 o'clock. The first doe group came kind of off the ridge working out of that food plot. A doe or two does and a young buck nudged and worked around the ridge. Great, cool deer moving through the area. And here comes another deer um, down out of the food plot. It looked like a, possibly a doe fawn or a the first year doe. It, it was kind of tough to tell. Anyhow, she came down, worked all across the ridge, worked out in front of us, 45 yards, came down, and then decided that she kind of wanted to figure out I don't know if it was what we were, but the wind, honestly, in that area, even though it was southwest that morning, was not very strong. Southeast. Southeast, excuse me. It was very variable. Well, a couple of times we puffed that wind. It's like, oh, my gosh, why is it going that way right now? But then it kind of get up and quickly get out. As it was getting a little warmer, it's like, well, we're in here. We it's, can't get down anywhere November now. 3rd. It's November 3rd. Bucks are cruising. We've got does in here. We're going to set it out. Anyhow. Doe might call a little bit of wind. Anyhow, she comes to like 25 yards, 30 yards, was interested, and then blew a couple times. Goes back up the ridge the way she came from. We're like, well, you know what? I don't even get that discouraged about a deer blowing this time of year because that just tells other deer, other bucks specifically, that, hey, there's a deer down there. I'm going to go check out, check it out and see what it is. And that's exactly what happened. She works up the ridge. She comes back. Obviously, she's getting chased. Here comes a younger buck. It's like, oh, 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 there's antlers. What happened? To, what happened? Um, she came right back 45 yards to the same trail. This two-and-a-half-year-old buck, great-looking deer, comes down the ridge, follows her, works off. She runs around out of sight, and he actually stopped pursuing her, comes back up the way he came, works back up to the food plot. Cool, great encounter. Hey, we're seeing some deer. That's awesome. And just before 9 o'clock, we see that same two-and-a-half-year-old. Adam saw it work out of the food plot area. It's kind of some thick cover between us and the food plot. Work out of that, come to the more open timber. Saw him. was like, oh, okay, it's that deer. And you spotted another movement behind him. Moving behind him a little bit further back. Yeah, like, it was like 30 yards there's back There's another deer back there. Oh. And kind of that, you could tell it was almost like the person coming to <laughs> investigate what he was seeing right right so there's another deer kind of on the the trail of this younger buck and Ad says hey it's a good buck we're like really finally it pops out for me to see 
It's like, yeah, no kidding. But it's it's what appears to be nudging that younger buck, and that younger buck is just taking the opposite ridge from us and kind of getting the heck out of Dodge. And obviously there seemed like to be some intimidation factor there. Um, but as we identified it, it's like, that's a, that's a good deer, possible that it might be big show. And got excited, but he was moving. And I clipped that was like, we got to do something, got to get a response out of him, let him know to come over here because he was quickly working um, out of view. Grabbed the grunt call, hit him a couple times, a couple bleats, but no like just visual sign that he was coming our direction. It was kind of weird encounter. He stopped, looked our direction, but put his head back down and continued kind of nudging that other buck off. And we're like, well, man, it's still a, a great morning. Got out of view. I'm kind of talking about it. And then between Adam and the tree, I look and just see antlers 100 yards off. It's like, yep. hey, 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 there he is again. And it's funny because I had actually never hunted from that stand. I had always filmed from it. And then seeing deer and the way they've actually come up to that stand, he was in an exact spot where – numerous times deer have been and ended up 20 yards from the stand so it quickly became there he is again he's actually on his way in like he could totally do this he heard the grunting and now he's going to nonchalantly come and investigate yeah it's like okay he had to he had to get that other buck out out of the general area and then he was making his way and it was crazy because he does crosses a ravine comes up kind of our side of the ridge Gets to, I know, one or two different saplings, kind of rubs for a second and does this just nasty, violent head shake and just snaps this sassafras and throws it back like behind his shoulders. It's like, oh gosh, he totally is responding to those grunts. And that's when it got like, kind of game on. Yeah, and I think I told you. Okay, I don't think it's big show now. Yeah. Whoever it is, though, if he comes in, he's we're going to shoot him. And, yeah. like, and we both sat there as he's making his way through a couple of just more clear gaps. It's like we both said it, that deer's three and a half. But the way that he is responding and acting and the way he's utilizing this terrain, this habitat, the show that he's putting on. Because when you saw him originally – you got him on camera. All this is getting filmed right now. He's nudging this other buck off. We catch him again. He comes up, destroys these sassafras saplings, works up the ridge. And it's like, this is too good to pass up. I have no bones about shooting this deer. This is awesome. What he does finally comes up to the ridge. It works very, very similarly as the way the buck you shot, Sticker 8, comes in. Didn't know if he was going to cross the ridge perpendicular and take a 40-yard trail. What he ended up doing, though, was staying on the ridge, the elevator ridge, and walking to 18 yards, stopped, turned broadside, then quartered away, and kind of looked back the direction. And he actually had some, I don't know if it was a leaf stuck in his antler, but something was still like he, like he had he got caught up in there on his left G2. And he's looking around, that thing's just shaking, and he's obviously just, kind of fired up as as a deer and came in 18 yards and thump that was it Eric hit probably the third or fourth rib from the back and came out in front of the opposite shoulder so just on the inside of that opposite shoulder 
the arrow didn't pass all the way through, but just he carried it, did puncture out. So he's bleeding out two holes. He runs straight back the way he came. Within 60 yards, he's down. And as we get down, talk about it, it's awesome, reliving it, we go, and where he's laying at, his body is actually laid up against one of those sassafras that he came and rip, rubbed yeah. and just ripped up. It's like, are you kidding me? Oh, man. So that was just another story, though, a kind of a, a very similar hunt and why we hunted and chose that area to hunt and what's been done in that area is very similar. But with yours, he just he snuck in like, oh, my gosh, he's there. This one was, holy crap, there's a deer. Got to get vocal. He responds. He's showing his response. Comes in. Whack. He's dead, but like, to me, two the, incredible hunts. The difference, really, too, is a bottleneck. You're going to see deer quickly as they're moving th- mm-hmm. to and from, and you may see a lot of deer, but you're only going to see them for a short period. Hunting close to bedding areas, you may see a few deer, but there's a chance you see them for a long time as they're moving and, around, and getting chased, it, and working, it, it. getting yeah. bumped by bucks, mm-hmm. and, and that was the other cool thing is that deer. Even though he he totally identified where we were at from across the ridge when he put his head up, he didn't make a beeline to us. What he ended up doing was working down the ridge and then taking a trail on the low side, the downwind side of that bedding area that was cut in that your brother had basically extended. He was not like, I would say, actively like looking, putting his nose on the ground, scent checking it, but working that downwind side and coming up to us from there. It's like... It happened. It happened yep. just like we would have expected, and he did exactly what deer do this time of year. Yep. And it's like, I I don't care. Perfectly <laughs> executed. Yeah, he is he is done, toast, and a great great deer. But it's basically it's it's proof in the pudding is what it comes down to. As yep. here are two great Ozark deer that utilized habitat features that we had put in place and terrain features that they're naturally going to use. Late season, you're going to focus in on hunting food sources. You yep. do that work in April and May, and, and you do it again in the in August when you're planting yep. food plots. We're doing the work for these hunts in January, February, March, April, even throughout the summer, yep. because anytime you can create these thickets, you're going to have an increase opportunity for better success during the rut yes. during that late October early November to where you you have the cover mm-hmm. and I, I know we keep saying it but this time of year you hunt cover or bottlenecks going to cover yep so, I, I wouldn't be anywhere else if I had a tag like if I was travel hunting if I was on my own property the number one thing I would be doing is identifying the cover that deer are using right now and I'd be hunting the heck out of it Yep. Absolutely. So there's a couple other, I guess, resources that if if this type of bedding area thicket is, is interesting to you, definitely go back to last week. We talk about how to create them in the timber. We talk about how to create them converting open fields to bedding area thickets. Um, in other podcasts, we've broken down properties um, and placed these in specific areas. And the more that you... I guess, consume information-wise, content-wise around bedding area thickets, I think the more convinced that you're going to be about 
I need to put. I need to have them. I don't have them yet. I need to have them. Put a heartbeat on your property. Yeah, yeah, and the, and that hunt it, hunt it this time of year next year. And 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 if next year we don't have any acorns and it's completely uh, like last year where it's just like there's not hardly any, then we may be hunting bottlenecks going to and from bedding or uh, food plots, mm-hmm. or we may be hunting some food plots. But this year. We have a lot of acorns, and typically we have a lot of acorns. Well, and ev- even even if we didn't, though, like it, it, at this time of year, we're still going to be hunting cover. The cover. Yeah. But like a couple of weeks prior ago, yeah, we w- we probably would have switched. We probably would have been on some more food plots. Yep. Uh, or hunted, you know, a bottleneck to and from a food plot. But that's the thing. That's why I like a, what I like about bedding areas is, depend. You know, it's not dependent upon drought it's not dependent upon the success of a food plot or the acorns it doesn't matter because if you have that cover this time of year that's what deer are utilizing that's right so before we wrap it up we have yes. a plant and an animal my animal is actually the hellbender what i didn't say hellraiser i said hellbender oh yeah we have a salamander um it's ba- it's in the salamander family um, there's two types of hellbenders here in the U.S., the Ozark hellbender and the Eastern hellbender. And what is so unique about the hellbender? Um, they have a range basically um, between the hellbender salamander. Um, there's central Ozarks, th- Tennessee, Kentucky, northern parts of Alabama, Georgia. Basically, it's a mountainous stream salamander. Um what what is it about the mountain streams? Um, basically, they live in cold, running, clean water, and that's what's so um, interesting about these animals. Is since they live in this cold, clean, oxygen-rich, fresh water. Basically around a lot of springs. Around a lot of springs. What do you think of mountainous creeks? It's mm-hmm. cold, clear, oxygen, high oxygen water. Yep. But the hellbender is actually a species that's concern of concern. They're threatened because, as a salamander, they breathe through their skin. Yep. So um, the the one of the things I read on them was picture um, going down the creek. And dragging your lungs behind you in the boat, like in the in the water. <laughs> nah, I'm good, thanks though. <laughs> yeah, um, you wouldn't want to do that. Uh, okay, imagine if you're in a river and you're dragging your lungs around behind you. Things are not going to go well if that river is polluted or muddy and murky. Yeah, yeah. And so we look at where we where we're at. 2018 pollution is a huge concern. Runoff is a huge concern. Uh, we we have. Uh, Pollution with with trash and litter, but then we also have agriculture practices that have more herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, all in those uh, that can be uh, in the runoff. But they and eventually we have, get to a water system, and we have an animal that's living in that water system that's that's basically soaking in everything that comes through the creek and is going through their skin. So the the reason I'm talking about the hellbender is it's a good indicator of the of the water quality. And when we look at high quality, we looked at um, the 80s, 1980s, when they really started to fall, the population. 
um, we had good, clean, clear water. And then we start doing what we do best, destroying land, and we start having a decline in these salamanders. Well, because you, you say we, you, we. you, you, you I, I just you, lumped you humans all together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was like, I, I like to think I'm uh, a void of that. Yeah, and so to me, it's just another indicator of the importance of understanding our footprint and littering, um, recycling, being aware of water runoff, water quality, air quality. And uh, and the salamander is to me is one of those that's just a you can look at it immediately and look at its population and if it's increasing we know our water quality is increasing mm-hmm. if it's declining we know our water quality is declining. Yeah. What's your plan? Did, what did you talk about the size? No, um, the Could hellbender. I, I'm trying to even see here on the size of a hellbender. They are um, we're looking at something length two feet. Um, uh, and people are like, well, you know, you said salamander. Legit, this is a salamander, and it's that big. That, if they listen into, if you want to hear a story on the hellbender, go to yeah. this week's hunting podcast, and you're going to hear an old buddy of mine, Cody McClary, describe a story that his brother had on a research project where one of these salamanders bit the leather glove, the le- bit, the, leather glove the, off. bit the finger, his thumb finger off the leather glove. So. They've got a mean bite, too. but They're big. They're, they're huge. They're big, two foot. And we're looking at comparison, sizing them up. The Chinese giant salamander is five foot, but it's uh, critically endangered. Yeah. So probably not going to see many of those, but that's no. how monstrous they are. But the hellbender, uh, the most dominant one is the tiger salamander, solid black with the little orange or yellow dots. A lot of people yeah. have seen those. But the hellbenders could reach feet up, uh, two foot. That's huge. Yeah. Um, I, I actually – I'm going to revisit an animal he talked about because of the implications. Um, and it's something that we've talked about. And I don't know, I'm getting more and more interested into just like the general readings of this topic. And and uh, takes me back to an article I shared with you and your brother um, from Australia. And what these folks were doing is creating these weirs. And basically they're just flooding control structures um, that just will raise the and it will slow down water moving through a creek and raise the level up it's basically like an impromptu um, beaver dam is what basically the weir is that they're kind of creating and that again will slow down the water increase the floodplain raise the water level up and then help to recharge aquifers and utilize the floodplain and basically it is <coughs> relieving the lack of water that comes through an area, whether it's rainfall or whatever, um, they're allowing that area to thrive more when there's more water, obviously, in the system, and creeks aren't drying up nearly as fast, so again, they're recharging those underground aquifers. That was really cool. It's really interesting. Um, So then that takes me back to an article, Adam, that you found, and this is strictly about the impact of beavers. And we talked about beavers a couple podcasts ago as, as an animal of, of influence and concern, um, but because of the ecosystem that they provided for other animals. And a um, couple things on this article, and we're going to do is share this in the podcast link too. So if, if this is interesting to you and you want to understand it more, definitely check out the podcast notes at uh, lanelegacy.tv. For this podcast, you'll, you'll be able to find it there. Um, but what is crazy is scientists calculate up to 250 million beaver ponds once puddled the continent, impounding enough water to submerge Washington, Oregon, and California. 
Isn't that wild? That's how much water beavers created surface water across the continent. When was this continent. again? That was uh, in an article um, written in 1938. That they had impounded the, enough water to yes. cover up California, yep. Washington, and Oregon. Yes. And, the entire and, west coast of the U.S., well, water-wise, was created by beavers across the entire you know, North continent. America? Yeah. That, that covered Because I know there are huge populations up in Canada. Huge. Yep. So, wow. So, um, so after trapping beavers out, like, crazy, crazy numbers. We talked about that on the Late podcast. Late 1800s, early 1900s. Yep. So, they estimate that just 100,000 beavers remained or survived that, and that's less than 1% of the historic numbers across the whole country. And so now what we did was remove that animal that, that had so much control over water across our entire continent. And now, like the southwest, Arizona, Nevada, California, these states have like zero water. Like they're in a water crisis. And so what they're doing is creating what they call BDAs, which is basically what Australia is doing is creating these weirs. But yeah. they're creating these human-made beaver dams and studying the effects of them and they're just replicating what beavers did and then they're getting the same basically result of it. And to me, what I read in that article was basically the water that falls, what little water that falls, usually it just runs through and it hits the dam or it hits the wherever the water goes. Mm-hmm. It hits a canal and it stays in a big lake and evaporates off. What the beaver was doing was slowing it down to where it was like... It was feeding areas. Yes, Yes. and and it was allowing enough time of standing water that the water was soaking into the banks and into the sides to where Mm -hmm. then you could almost see it migrating up the slopes with with life, with green green plants. Root systems all interconnect. Yeah. And that's why, like, if you slow the water down, it will feed these larger areas outside of the immediate, you know, beaver dam. And that's what it was doing, so... There's a lack of grass. The um, desertification of the Southwest is a direct result of lack of water in their system. So they're experimenting by creating these BDAs. But I guess the article talks about them, you know, the, the I guess the controversy of and the issues that we've had in reintroducing some animal species. And they're like, we can create a BDA for, you know, $10,000 or do we just reintroduce a hundred thousand beavers or, you know, restock areas of beavers? Like what, what's the, what do we weigh out? So it's something like food for thought of, you know, what's, what's better. Do we just create these man-made BDAs or do we just, you know, put some beavers out there, restock some areas and just say, boys, do what you do knowing yeah. that there's going to be some, you know, there will be some negative effects to cropland. Yep. But the end result is still water in places that there has never been water before. Cattle will be able to graze areas that they have not grazed in. Or in some instances, they'll actually be able to bring cattle in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Have, have cattle. The land will be more productive. And it goes right in with with the filtering system of of the marshes, of the areas that the mm-hmm. beavers had, had manipulated and caused this new ecosystem. Yep. It goes right in hand with. With the salamander that I just covered, cleaner water. Cleaner water means you can have more animals that are um, that rely on that clean water. This is something else. It was 
when I was talking about how many beaver ponds there were, 200, 250 million beaver ponds, the beaver in North America, northern North America, like the north half, is the reason for the high-quality farmland that we have now. Like, they trapped this water and held it, which allowed sediment to, like, slowly filter out and reach the bottom of these water sources that is now farmland now. So, like, yes, the Great Plains was built on, you know, diversity of plants. But a lot of the farmland that has been drained out was because of beavers and all that, you know, rich sediment was filtered in because of the slowing down of water. So what we have now is thanks to the beaver and now we're just kind of giving the big middle finger because we trapped them all out and they're, they're gone like, they're like ninjas yeah Isn't that what they said on duck dynasty it seemed like the whole show was them trying to kill out the beavers that mm-hmm. were destructing their their uh waterfowl holes yeah but <laughs> the beaver if you think about that the beaver and it's and it's dominance throughout the area our waterfall fowl populations Pre nineteen hundred or pre unbelievable, unreal black yeah. skies like yeah. insane because they had so much water, so much like we had so many more resident ducks. Not all of them you migrated that far up. You know what else we so had a lot much. of though too? Mosquitoes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, but then we had more bats as well too. Exactly. Um, it's crazy to think about how that, much the the beaver and animal of engineering skills changed this landscape and now we are we live off the benefit of it and and completely trapped it out and destroyed it well that and also i've always begged the question like when you look at the great prairies and and the american bison and you're like how because in in cattle world is you don't want your cows to be more than 800 feet away from water Mm mm-hmm I know a bison's probably built to make it further without water, but we're talking herds of millions mm-hmm. and thousands to where you're like, okay, where are they getting their water? That, that that whole herd isn't going to a water hole at the same time. But then you look at, like, when you have an increased amount of water infiltration, you have more seeps, you have more springs, then you have more, you also have more beavers that have created these pockets and just water everywhere in the low spots where you're like any low spot probably had water had water the vegetation had more probably water content to it It absolutely bigger higher and was richer in just water content because because of the beaver and the retainment of water in the soil absolutely it's nuts but so all intertwined that's why it's important i think that we talk about these you know species of concerns and this and that because everything is so interconnected. So when we do something to the land, it's going to change something else. Yeah. Or it's going to affect it at least. The beaver has a – has a. Uh, I know we're running low on time, but um, the beaver is looked at a lot like the coyote. In, in, in a lot of parts of the country, yes. Because you have an animal that's native. Let's not forget that. That's mm-hmm. the biggest thing. It's he was here a North befo- American beaver. He was here before us. Yeah. And – we find a thing that says, I can do better than him. I can manage the prey population better than him. I want to remove him. Well, what happens? You you cause a population explode, throw things way out of whack, and the rest of his life he's cursed and treated terribly. Beaver, same thing. Yep. People are trying to trap him out, get rid of him, but then we look at water just going right down the gut, into the gulf, and out of here. 
we have has serious, its place. serious water issues in southwest United States. And there everywhere. There's huge document documentaries <laughs> yeah. about that, and we've completely changed the landscape. And and now we're – and it's funny. I, I feel like a lot of the, the controversy um, surrounding beavers is now with farmers again, but it's like – Man, we don't even realize what you're what you're sinking your seed into this spring. It was built because of that beaver originally, yeah. and and you're cussing it because it's gonna flood out, you know, an acre of your corn. You can't get it come come yeah. October. Well, yeah, well, you got a, a thousand other acres. You, you're lucky. You can thank him for it. <laughs> and he's you know? causing water to stay on your property longer than yeah. than running off. Yeah, yeah. And he's filtering it too. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, well, hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast. Hopefully you're making plans to create some bedding thickets coordinated with bottlenecks and having some success similar to what we had, if not better, because you're probably not in the Ozarks and you're not stuck with smaller deer. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Land and Legacy, and uh, we will catch you guys next time. Contact us if you have any questions regarding that at Land and Legacy. No, info at landandlegacy.tv. We'd be happy to answer any questions. We'll see you guys.